Inside the Game, brought to you by Flex Coach and Flex Coach VR. Welcome back to Inside the Game, brought to you by Flex Coach and Flex Coach VR. This is segment three with Brian Garber. Women's side right now, you have some ranked players probably working with you. Um, what are things you work on with them on a daily basis to keep them sharp mentally and physically? What do you What do you hone in on? What things do you do? You correct mistakes after a match. You said, you know, these things you didn't do correctly. We got to work on this. You know, your volley, your serve, whatever it could be, or just wasn't sharp enough. Do you break that down with them? Like you, like you know, other sports they break it down and they say, you know, hey guys, on defense and football, you know, we were getting beat in the secondary. You know, these are the things yeah. we got to look at. You know, in, in hockey, it could be, you know, the breakout wasn't correct or baseball, everyone's striking out to this one pitcher. Do you do yep. the same in tennis with them? Like, do you, do you say to them, hey, you know, this is where you got to be. Your foot speed wasn't as good as it should be for this. Or, you know, it's, it's a hard sport. I mean, it's an individual sport. It's, it's a crazy hard sport. It's a couple sports at once, to be honest. And, yeah, that's that's what the job is. And, and what we try to do is find patterns in where things go wrong, right? And And I've always lived by a rule. This is another one. I found from my dad, he, he refused to call something a weakness. He, he and Kurt Kleinendorf taught me that it was areas <laughs> to improve, right? <laughs> yes. It, it's something's never a weakness. It's an area to improve and almost adopting in my mind, a 70, 30 rule where I find a lot of people spend too much time working on the things they aren't good at. And then you lose your identity and my sport. One of the most important things is there's differing game styles. There's differing people you have to know what your parameters and what your box is. And I think that's the hardest thing to do in my sport. Know what you are. How am I going to win? And I, and I ask every player I work with, when things are going well, what are you doing well? And that says a lot about what they are as a player. And we try to work things around that. But 70-30 rule, 70% of the time, I want to work on the things that people are good at. Because if we can make those things continue going in the right direction, that's, that's the player's identity. That's where they're going to win their matches. And 30% on the things that we call areas to improve. And if I can improve something that's already bad on a player by two, 3%, that's a big difference for somebody. So we, although we try to nail down mistakes, um, more of it is accentuating what you're good at. And, and like a rule that we live by is I'm more okay with you making a mistake with your shot than making a mistake with one that's not right. So we put ourselves in a position to when I get my shot, if I go and I miss, I'm, I can live with that. That's a lack of execution. We can work on that. When I'm going for things that aren't mine, that's when we have a problem. That's It's almost like knowing your identity as a player, I think, in tennis is the most overlooked and probably the most important part of the sport. And you see the best players in the world, they play within their box and within their parameters. And I mean, think about in hockey, if you have a third-line guy who's trying to be a hero and skate it in, instead of dumping and chasing like what he's supposed to do and carry out his role. It's the same in my sport. We're like, instead of a team, we have a forehand, a backhand, a serve, a volley, a return. That's your team, right? And within that team, you know, which ones are your guys that are going to go and which ones are your ones that should just dump it in. Right? So if I'm on a weaker side and that's not my side of strength, I just want to put that ball somewhere where I don't get hurt and then try to get to my good one. So it's, it's very similar to a team sport like hockey, but our team is all within the same person. How do you get a player ready for a tournament? You know, it's a grind for a player. You know, you're going to play like the U.S. Open just finished. And, you know, there's going to you're going to have to play a match every other day leading up to the championship. It's it's a grind. It's two weeks. You're really going to have to focus for two weeks. You know, leading up to it, you're probably having to get ready mentally, 
physically everything. Um, you know, and, and, and as I said, it's not a team sport in the sense of there's other people to rely on. Right. Um, but how do you get them ready mentally, physically, knowing that, hey, when this starts, you could be out the first day if you don't do these things. And, you know, now you get past that first round. I mean, do you look at the draw that comes out and you say, okay, we've beaten this person. We've beaten that person. Oh, wait a minute. That person gave us trouble the last time we played them. Do you, do you break it down and, and, and really look at it in a, in a sense of like a, coming up with a game plan for them? It's um, yes and no. I, I try not to be a draw watcher because at that level, when you're playing at the U.S. Open outside of in the women's side, there's nobody. But in the men's side, outside of the Djokovic, Federer, Nadal, everybody can beat everybody on any given day. Looking past things is crazy. Um, yeah, we try to exploit men. There, there's certain names if I'm with a player that I, I pray I don't see. <laughs> um, or you just know, like in an individual sport like that, there's just matchup nightmares. You know, there, there's people who do well, all the things that you don't, or people that all the things that I want to accomplish, they also do, but are a little better than me. And so there's that kind of stuff, but going off the preparation, what's, what's so hard about my sport is there's really no off season. So it's like, you think that you spend all your time preparing for that U S open, but most of these players on tour are fighting for their life week after week to keep their ranking, to make their money, to be able to continue on. We don't, we don't have guaranteed salaries. We have none of that. So the week before the U S open for a lot of these players is as important as the U S open is outside of those top three or four players that are really trying to win that it's every match on tour that you can win within a year is as important as any other one. So it's like, it's a continuous where going into the U S open, which is the last slam of the year. It's, you're doing a lot of maintenance at that point. It's, it's not like you're going a full out assault with a training block to really prepare for that tournament. We kind of do all that work before Australia. November, December is really our time that we put in all the work. And throughout the season is more maintaining. It's maintaining your fitness levels, making sure things in your game don't get goofy. Um, yes, we're still trying to improve every day and work on things and that kind of stuff. But it, it's a tough sport because you have to just maintain your level all year. It's if you look at the record of a player 50 in the world, a lot of those ones have a losing record on tour for the year. So it's, I'm trying to have four or five really good weeks in a year to keep my ranking and, and make my money so that I can continue to play. And if that comes at a major, that's excellent because it's double the money, but we're constantly positioning ourselves that every Monday when a tournament starts, I'm going in, this could be the week, right? It's, it's, this could be the week. This couldn't be the week. And regardless, I got to keep going and keep working because there's another one right around the corner. So with the majors, it's, I think outside of those top three or four guys, it's, it's more of a one round here. Next round is a bonus. Next round is a bonus and keep going and keep going. And, and I know it comes off as almost a loserish mentality, but it's, it's a long 11 months a year for these players. Now, leading up to the majors, you know, the Australian Open, Wimbledon, the French U.S. Open. Um, do you advise them on how many tournaments they should play in between those? Yes. And it's 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 different for everyone, too. There's there's certain players who and this is a place where analytics help, where you can start looking at somebody's schedule from the year before and seeing the weeks and the times that they played their worst. And you can maybe say, hey, that week we need to get home and put in a good fitness week and put in a good training week instead of staying on the road for that fourth week in a row. So you can kind of work. And there's certain players who can be on the week on the road 
like for example, the Australians outside of that first month of the year, they're long, far, far from home for the whole season. So those players kind of have, have worked out how to improve and stay mentally and physically good on the road. Whereas a lot of us Americans between the French and Wimbledon, there's some players who stay for two months and don't come home. And I've had a couple of players were like, Hey, once the French is done, let's get home for two weeks, put in some fitness work, get the mind right, get to see your family, get to be sleep in your own bed, then we'll go back. And that's how you perform best. So it's, it's such an individual basis, but yeah, like, the top 50 players I've worked with, we put a big emphasis on those majors. So a lot of times you will do a training block right before maybe one warm-up tournament and then get there early to get a good week and a half on the courts. But a lot of these players, anywhere from 50 to 150 in the world, they're just grinding week to week. Whatever I can get. If I get into a tournament, I'm going. And if I win, great. And I'll show up at the major. I might be tired, but those points I won, that money I won last week is very important in my, in my career path. So when you're leading up to like the U.S. Open, let's give you an example. It's in New York. It's a big event here in the, in New York area where I am. And you're playing. Do you like get there a week in advance to get a feel for what the place is like, to get the court surface, to look at the netting, to look at everything that you're going to be facing, all the distractions that could happen to you in New York City? Do you bring them in a week in advance and have them really go through everything? I mean, I remember, you know, I, I Ivan Lendl used to take – the same company that put center court at, at the U S open would do the same exact macadam at his yep. house in Greenwich. So he had a feel for the court. I mean, those are the kind of things that the average person wouldn't know that you guys have to kind of look at. Yeah. For example, like the type of ball you're going to use at every tournament is really important because they all, people don't think that you think a tennis ball is a tennis ball. These balls, the weight shape, the way that they get when they're, where they've been used for a little bit. So like before Australia, that full month, we'll practice with the balls for Australia. Um, we try to practice on a surface that's going to be as similar in speed to the one in Australia. This year in New York, I got word, because I went for the juniors instead of the pros, which starts week two. I got word from some of my pro coach friends, get here a couple of days early, need to get used to the courts. It'll be the fastest court you've played on all year. So that kind of information that we pass around is huge. And then what we did here was we tried to get prepared here on the fastest courts we could find in this area. So you try to replicate the conditions. And yes, we, the, the pros are a good week in advance to make sure. And they're doing basically two a days, five days a week, getting ready for those just to get the comfortability of all, all the variables. There's two, we're trying to eliminate variables in my sport and it's hard. It's, there's not one central governing body. So every week you're playing with a different ball at different altitude and a different time zone on a completely different surface and kind of remarkable that the person from home doesn't realize that that's how much work that goes into preparing for these things. How do these young players handle that? I mean, how do they handle disappointment? How do they handle, I mean, you know, you're working with the junior circuit. I mean, some of these kids are very young. They could be as young as 14, maybe 15 years old. That pressure has to be tremendous on them. I mean, how do they focus? How, I mean, they got schoolwork to do, you know, there's a lot of things they have to go through. It's almost like being a college athlete, but you're, you're at a high level. You are. And the thing that people don't realize is those, those first few years on tour are not glamorous by any means. You, you hear like in, in my sport, and I think golf is similar in that way. I turned pro. That's great. That doesn't mean anything. So you're, you're traveling to some of the not, not the most ideal places, staying in bad hotels, scrapping by with whatever you can, um, trying to win. And you, the majority of the time, every week, 
everybody but one person loses, right? So whether it's first round or second round, you're still going to feel bad about yourself. And managing that and trying to put process over results is so important. It's like, okay, this week, if we can be 5% better than last week, whether we win or lose the first round is, is not. It's, it's, it's very difficult that we try so hard to separate ourselves from the results and just worry about getting better, especially for the young ones. Um, every loss is experience. Every win is experience. We try to use that, but it's just like, can we keep the trajectory going upwards? Because it is a lonely road out there when you're in the middle of nowhere in Belarus or this place and you lose, and then you have to sit around at the same place you just lost at and practice for the week to try to get better for the next week. It's, it's, it's not ideal. It's, um, it's a very tough life. And I'm glad that my sport's trending to more players going to college because I think mentally you grow up as a human in college more than you do as a 17-year-old with the weight of the world on your shoulders. Let's get into one thing that a lot of people probably look at tennis, look at like ice hockey, cost. It's a lot of money to play tennis. You have to get court time. You have to have a coach like yourself if you really want to be good. Um, how do some of these parents come up with the monies to travel these kids? And, and every, I mean, it's a lot of money, Brian, when you put this together. It's, it's an insane amount. And it's one of the things that kind of hinders our sport in our country. And people have a lot to say about why American tennis isn't great. And it's, that's also, I wouldn't say true, but we have a lot more barriers to entry here than they do in other places. Um, and most of those barriers to entry are financial. We, I like to think that there's still a way to make it without that, but it's very difficult. And, and one of the, one of the hardest parts about our sport is in order to make it, you have to put so much down, even after you've become one of the best juniors in the world or the best, this or that you're looking at costs of a hundred grand a year, just to try to make it. And it's tough. So in my sports, sports agents kind of work the opposite way that they do in other sports, whereas a hockey kid or a football guy, the agent gets paid off of that initial contract, that rookie contract or whatever contract they sign. Whereas in my sport, the agents are more talent identifiers and they go try to find the kids who can make it and they sign them and cover their costs up until the point. And they hope out of the 20 kids that they sign that one or two are the ones that make it and really make them money. So it's kind of a backward scheme where if you're a good enough junior, you're kind of going to get support, whether it's from your, your federation or, or if it's from, a specific an IMG or a company like this where it's gotten a little nuts where they're signing 14 and 15, which is just way too young, but, but that's the cost of doing business nowadays. It's who can find them younger and they're pouring money into these kids in hopes that they make it and talk about pressure. That's a lot of pressure on kids when there's finances behind it and your family is looking for food on the table from you. So it's, it's a different sport to try to make it in. That's one of the things. I mean, these, these, the IMGs of the world and these other, you know, different, you know, tennis academies out there, they're really pushing these kids way beyond their limits, probably in some cases, mentally and physically, because they got it. They want it. They've, they've put an investment in you and you're 14 and 15, and they're really pushing you to be an elite player by the time you're 16, 17 years old. Not every kid's going to make it. Some most kids are gonna, don't, right? Yeah, most kids are going to burn out. They're not going to be able to do it. It's going to be very hard for them to do it. Um, do you think that hinders a lot of kids from really pursuing this and just saying, I'm not going to do this? A thousand percent. I, I've seen way too many kids who had the talent to do it that were burned out at 15, 16 and never the same. And 
my whole approach to this whole thing is I've seen plenty of people make it who didn't do the homeschool, who didn't do that stuff, who were regular kids who lived a regular life. Because at the end of the day, if your whole circle, all the things, your, your social life, your family life, if those things aren't in order, I can't get the best out of you on a tennis court anyway. So it's, it's having that, I still think that there's a place for the kids and in some other countries is how it is where they're living a balanced life and going to regular school. And then, I mean, what can you practice on a tennis court for five hours a day? There's nothing. It's, it's, it's quality over quantity. And we've lost, lost the plot a little bit on that. And I'd like to see kids being more well-rounded and having more things that they can fall back on. So that pressure isn't overwhelming to me. Right. And you're seeing now, even on the women's side, a lot more players are coming through the college ranks and having success. The average age of success is backing up. I think the average age in the top 100 on the men's tour is 29, and it was like 26 a few years ago. Women's side went from 21 now to 25. So it's kind of like our sport is figuring itself out and saying, hey, maybe that's not the way. And, and maybe those two 18 and 19-year-old girls who just played the U.S. Open final are an anomaly. They're not the norm. And I think we... We reactionary as humans, we base things on outliers instead of basing it on the norm. And the norm is these people that end up developing by 25, 26. There's not really a rush. Everybody's on their own timeline, right? So as these kids are coming along and, and, they're, and they're there and they declare being a pro, does that hinder them from going to college? Not so much in my sport. Um, I can claim I'm a pro at any time. Um, and now with the new NIL, NIL stuff is a lot different too. Um, but as long, even in my sport for the last eight years, they've been smart where they're allowing college kids to play professional tournaments while they're enrolled in school and at school. So it's a really smart thing to keep kids around. And they're also, they allow you to cover your expenses if you make them in pro events. So if I were to fly to Decatur, Illinois to play a challenger event and I'm a college player and I win 2,500 bucks on the weekend, I can cover up to what my flight, my hotel and all my food costs are. So we've, we've made it a little bit better in those areas. And I'm appreciative for that because it was not like that for a long time. It was, you can still get your sponsorship from racket companies and clothing companies and get those things that, that help you on the path to go as college players now. And that was never really available a few years ago. That was segment three with Brian Garber here on Inside the Game, brought to you by Flex Coach and Flex Coach VR. Stay tuned for segment four. Inside the Game, brought to you by... Flex Coach and Flex Coach VR. 